0: Welcome to Uninhibited, a podcast with the mission to discuss taboo, multicultural, multi-generational, and multi-layered topics that matter to women. My name is Dr. Mukunda Abdulbaki. I am an Ivy League-trained OBGYN practicing medicine in rural America. I am married and raising three dynamic African-American boys. I am a mother, a career professional, a part of Generation X, and so much more. I bring to the table a true desire for social justice that informs my opinions. And my hope is that this podcast will open conversations, question beliefs, and be transformative. Hello and welcome to Uninhibited. My name is Dr. Makunda Abdul Baki. And today we have in the studio a follow-up from the part one. We have part two with Dr. Kristen Ryman and uh, when she's listened to Part One, you can understand what her struggle had been with Lyme disease, getting the diagnosis, making the the decision to live and move forward, and just the the struggle and that's kind of where we left off at um episode one was her making the decision that she was gonna fight and that she wanted to live and um, move forward. And so I just wanted to pick up where we left off, uh, Kristen. And so once you made the decision, what did that look like? What, what everyday things changed and what big picture things had to change?
1: Well, I, I would love to be able to say that once I made that choice, it all was, you know, fun and games and super easy. And it was still very hard um, it wasn't that way. And in, in fact, I feel like my body sort of made the choice for me and my, my spirit and brain kind of took a while to catch up, sort of got dragged along for a few months through the dirt. But the truth is um, it, there was a lot of improvement in my overall being, because once I made that choice, even though the pain was still really present, I mean, still 10 out of 10 rocket like pain going from my butt down to my foot, and my right side. Um, every time I stood up, the suffering had really all disappeared. So that made a huge difference. And the next couple of years were really just sort of steps in the direction of let's behave like a person who wants to be alive. You know, let's um, find the things I want to do in life that bring me joy. And, um, and at every decision point for me, it was like, there was this hard, hard hard line in the sand that said, "Is if you cross this line, is it going to bring you joy or is it going to take you to suffering? And I think the biggest thing that happened after I made that choice was that everything I chose was all about something that was going to tilt me towards joy as opposed to the other extreme.
0: So would you say that you became more intentional?
1: Much more intentional. I mean, I stopped saying yes to things wow. that didn't make sense for me or didn't seem to grow love or heal the planet or mean more time with my kids. And it made a big difference in how the rest of my life has been. But it also, I think, was sort of a practical decision. I really was still in a lot of pain. Uh, um, you know, I'd lost 30 pounds. I was very, very weak. And so a lot of things I just couldn't do. And so it made it easy to be able to say no to those things. So that was probably the the first really big change for me was that if it didn't feel good, if it didn't grow love or create, you know, a better world, I said, if it didn't feel good in my body, you know, I just said no.
0: So at this point, were you working a full-time job in the clinic or like, because there were certain points when you described such extreme suffering, I thought for sure you weren't working. And then you were like, no, I was working. I would just come home and lie down and, you know, my kids and my husband never saw me. So you held it together for an eight to 10 hour day at work. But when you were becoming more intentional, were you still able to work a full-time job or what did that look like?
1: There was a period where I was working through a lot of suffering. And then there was a period where I couldn't get out of bed for three months. And it was Mm -hmm. after, it was during that three month lying in my bed, um, that I decided to live, and after that, I slowly, slowly but surely was up and about more. Um, I found myself doing things like, you know, having breakfast in the kitchen or going, you know, going to physical therapy in the water, or even starting yoga. And like, wow, how did I get here? My body just was like on a mission to, to stay alive and just moving in the direction of health. Um, and so at, it was at that time after the three months in bed that I really was like, look, if I'm going to be up and alive, I'm clearly not doing anything that's going to take me down the path of debilitation again.
0: And so what types of, like, can you be specific? Like, were you saying no to taking on more patients or saying mm-hmm. no to doing the PTA if that's really not what? wanted to do and maybe it was something people expected like you you were really weighing each decision as as um is this going to help me or hurt me
1: yeah i was and i i did go back to work although one of the you know i say i did nothing that i didn't want to do the truth is i really didn't want to be a doctor anymore Makunda. i didn't want to go back to working in the clinic i didn't want to you know, use the tools of of my craft that I've been trained to use because much of what I learned during that experience was that some of the tools that I recommended could get people sick and could get people who had Lyme disease even sicker. Um, And I, I felt very out of integrity, you know, going back into a system that was broken and not healing for others and participating in that, both because it felt so toxic to me from a physical and emotional standpoint, but because it just didn't feel right to be delivering care in that way, and so
0: I did. People would be toward- surprised at how many doctors have those moments. And um, I've had the I, you know, it was with my first job that I was like, "This can't be it!" Like this, like after all these years of struggling to be a doctor and uh, doing residency, and the dream I've had the dream of being a doctor since I was three. Um, And then when you finally achieve it, and you're just like, wait a minute, this, this can't be it. So that's, um, it's good to be honest like that. So this is any, certainly any young people, any middle aged people, any older people listening, it's never too late to craft the life that you want. And, and I'm saying that because a part of me also is, is hearing, you know, the, you know, someone saying, Oh, well, that's, all well and good because you've had your education and you um, have a husband and you have all of this support. So, what does this look like with uh, someone with limited means and limited opportunities?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and it's certainly true that it can be a it can be a profession with many rewards, but. I I really, I really believe that most doctors are surprised when they just as you were when they get to the real deal and say, wow, you know, I get seven minutes with my patients to build relationships not happening. (laughs) I get, Mm -hmm. I get, um, you know, to wrangle with insurance companies to get paid for the job I've done. And I get to spend hours and hours at home doing paperwork to make sure insurance companies get notes that they probably still won't pay me for because that's how they roll. And it's, it just, it like rings the joy out of it. So I, I have, you know, I work with a lot of patients who've really suffered at the hands of the medical system, people with, you know, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, chronic Lyme, the sort of wastebasket diagnoses that, you know, we don't learn how to do well. And so doctors as a rule tend to sort of even scoff at and diminish and pretend they're not even valid diseases. And so patients have been really severely abused when they get to me many cases. And um, I, I try to validate that, but I also try to put things in perspective when they're open to hearing it because doctors didn't go to med school to be jerks, but many of us end up really not doing, doing, you know, really good service by our patients because we're so miserable Mm -hmm. within that system. They're suffering too.
0: So how did you reconcile um, because your current practice of medicine doesn't look anything like your former practice of medicine. So tell us how you're um, healing and treating people now.
1: Well, that was a direct result of the whole Lyme, you know, illness and the decision to really only do things out of love and that felt really good in my heart and my soul um, and my body. And so soon after I finished my kind of recuperation and I got back into the workforce, I did have a period of time where I went back to the clinic, where I'd been seeing patients. Um, it was a very stressful clinic. It was the inner city and it, you know, that by itself wasn't stressful. It was quite rewarding actually, but there was a lot of turnover at the time as our group was trying to become a federally qualified health center and a lot of negativity among the people who worked there. And it was, you know, a toxic place to work emotionally at that, at that time. Um, and so it felt like, you know, why would I go back to that? That was place was killing me. Um, And my husband said, you know, you really do have to still be a doctor (laughs) until we figure out something else because we can't just cut our salary in half. And so I went back to that kind of with the reframe in my mind that I'm not going back to that to just get back in that. I'm going back to that temporarily to try to heal the relationships that were broken because of my leaving. There actually was a lot of anger at me for being sick. It was a really toxic place. Um, to heal the relationships and also to sort of do some vocational rehab. I'm going to learn how to be in the workforce again. Um, And so even though I think I told you in the first, in part one that I, when I went back, I was, you know, seeing still the number of patients I would see, but I was lying down in between every patient. I was like taking 10 minutes to just write my note and lie on my back in between patients. And that was kind of how I managed for another six months or so before I left. When I left, Mm -hmm. I started my own practice. So I stopped seeing patients for them after a certain period. And I opened my own little practice in my living room in in the house we were living at the time. And um, my intention was very clear. Like I'm practicing in the most non-toxic, loving, supportive place I can imagine. I've got my big fluffy dog and I've got my kids and my husband and this house is going to help support me as I learn how to be a doctor again.
0: Mm Hmm. So at that point, you um, were offering your services, um, and by that time, you were more doing integrative medicine, or I mean, because if you were going to be practicing in the exact same way, it wouldn't make any sense to go from the clinic to your house, even though, you know, in some ways, it would be a little bit more healing for you, but you had some changes in the way you were practicing and approaching patients, and can you tell us what those were like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I will say that I went from a pretty traditional family practice style, you know, with including OB and including um, like full spectrum care in the clinic to a very focused Lyme consult practice. So I basically had been in touch through my own journey and recovery with all the Lyme support groups in my area. A lot of the famous Lyme doctors in my area who I kind of had on speed dial um, through this whole episode. And all of those people had said to me, you're going to get well, it's going to be fine. Do this, do that, do the other thing and call us when you're well, because we have a list of people who can't get in to see someone who has um, a background in Lyme. It's just a very hard, still very hard to find, believe it or not. And so by mm-hmm. the time I opened my doors, everybody, they were all waiting. So I had you know, instant patients who wanted to come and see me and just deal with what they believe was chronic Lyme, which you know I know now is never just Lyme. People who are quite sick from Lyme, there's always other pieces. There's other co-infections, there's food allergies, there's, you know, living in toxic homes, living in mold, that sort of thing. Um, and so I had learned, I was in the process of learning all that. I mean, I'm still frankly learning all that. I'm continuously picking up pieces from my toolbox. And I was very upfront with people. Look, I'm recovering right now. I'll, I'll share what I know. I'm not an expert. I'm just a person who's been there and maybe is two steps ahead of you. And so it Mm -hmm. was really a a time in my life when my patients really kind of, um, you know, I felt like, I felt like we're true partners, you know, like we're both in this mm-hmm. together. I'm like, I've got my hand out and I'm two steps ahead of you and I'll help pull you, pull you forward and we'll keep learning together. So that's how my practice changed. I mean, it was dramatic.
0: Yeah. So, and you felt a lot of rewards with that. What, what have been your success stories?
1: Well, I mean, people who've had years and years of pain and dysfunction and brain fog and, you know, Lyme comes in so many different In so many different ways, but people with Mm -hmm. dysfunction many years have recovered, and that's huge. I mean, I haven't recovered everybody yet, and that's why Mm -hmm. I'm continuously learning and trying to learn more and understand more about all the different ways in which our immune system can break down and allow a line infection to become so severe and and prevent um, recovery. But um, yeah, I've had a lot of people with amazing success. And it's been hugely rewarding. And couple that with the fact that I spend an hour with each patient, like, it's not like I'm just sort of on the sidelines hearing the stories, like we're, we're troubleshooting and we're brainstorming and we're like, you know, researching stuff together when they come to see me to find the next thing that's going to help them go to the next level.
0: Okay. So tell us, I guess, a little bit about what are your Like treatment plans looking like, or how do you make the diagnosis? Because I'm sure you get a fair amount of patients that may have read something in a journal or picked up something off the internet who believe they have Lyme, but the tests don't show that they have Lyme, um, and which we've talked about already as being very, um, you know, not sensitive as far as really being able to pick up Lyme disease. But how do you test them? Is it, uh, is it through blood tests or do you have to go to specialty labs or do you just kind of make a clinical judgment based on your, the, you know, their history and the physical that you do?
1: Yeah. It's really dependent on the person and the story and what they're, what they want. So as a family mm-hmm. doctor, I'm really trained in sort of relationship-centered care and trying to understand what are the values and expectations and background and, you know, finances, how do all those things kind of come together to create what are some options, what would be some potential options for this person? My preference is to avoid testing. Um, Testing can be very misleading. It can be kind of a waste of time and money, especially the tests that are, that exist that are sort of the better tests for Lyme. They're quite expensive. They're considered experimental. By insurances. So they're not usually reimbursed.
0: Um, okay.
1: they're not, they're not a hundred percent either. So in my mind it, um, if someone's willing to just go with some, um, some natural and basic lifestyle changes as a start, while we're figuring out whether we want to test often, so many things get better when people, for example, heal their gut with an elimination diet. So I always start there because it removes a lot of different symptoms and it it shows you what's left. And then it's really possible to make a good clinical diagnosis based on what symptoms are present and which things went away when you healed the gut.
0: So tell us about healing the gut. What do you start people with as far as an elimination diet?
1: Well, I start with um, the Institute for Functional Medicine's basic elimination diet. It takes out sort of the top 10, either allergens or potential um, I call them secondary allergens, foods that can create inflammation if there's already inflammation present. Um, there are a few things that create inflammation in everybody, whether or not they feel that inflammation is, is another issue. But gluten, for example, creates little micropores, little micro tears in the gut lining, which can lead to over time inflammation. And once you've got those kind of tears and you've got those pores, also called intestinal permeability or leaky gut, Other foods can act like allergens because they can slip into your bloodstream, not fully digested, and therefore looking like foreign invaders to your immune system. And that just leads to a feedback loop where the immune system is directed back at the gut again and again until the gut's healed by removing all of those things for a period of time, it's going to continue to attack itself. So I basically do, I start there. And so many people have such amazing recoveries and maybe not all the way, but certainly differences in how they feel, more energy, less brain fog, less fatigue, um, that you know, sometimes less joint pain, that we um, can really make a, a better decision about next steps once the gut is healed. Not to mention the immune system comes back to life when you heal the gut, because 60% of your immune system is hanging out in the gut associated lymphoid tissue and getting distracted by your food if there's anything inflammatory in what you're eating.
0: And so was this where you started with yourself also, was looking at your your diet and making those changes?
1: Um, no, because I didn't know about this until about a year into my illness. Um, oh, I, was okay. doing a lot of, I was doing a lot of other things. I was, um, you know, lying in my bed for a long time researching. And so what I, what I had been doing up until the point where I learned about elimination diets was I'd done a lot of spiritual work. You know, I was working with Mm -hmm. people who who were helping me um, look at old wounds and unforgiveness and, you know, anger and sadness and loss and kind of working through those. I was also healing my relationships to my my friends in the clinic and other places, basically the people who had been disappointed by my um, absence and the people who I imagined were disappointed by my absence, you know, like my dad, for example, all he had was love for me, but because he's a doctor, because I had my own assumptions about what he expected of me, like all that stuff got dredged back up. So I was working on that. Um, I was taking herbs. I was taking some what's called biofilm busters because much of what Lyme does is it creates a lot of biofilm to live in. And so you got to kind of tear that away with different kinds of agents. Um, I was, I was taking homeopathics. I was taking, um, I was taking regular acupuncture, doing yoga. I mean, all of that. I didn't learn about the food until about six months after I got back to work. I went to a conference, um, a functional medicine conference. And for those who don't know, functional medicine is kind of in the last twenty years. It's become a, a really nice new addition to the armamentarium of doctors. So doctors and other other practitioners can go and learn from functional, functionally trained docs. And um, and and it's a it's an amazing approach. It really looks at it does a lot with lab values and looking at sort of how leaky is the gut and what sort of pathogens are present there and um, what sort of MTHFR or other other genetic mutations might predispose a person to not be able to detox well or to not be able to handle drugs well. And so I learned all that. Um, But the thing that really stuck with me was the elimination diet. It's just such a basic, simple tool that anyone can do. And it teaches you so much because when you add foods back, After your gut's healed for 21 days, your body really can tell you when it doesn't feel good. And so it helps you create a list of the foods that are kind of on your healing team and the things to to avoid if you want to get better.
0: And so then that would be, each person would possibly have a unique combination because it's not one size fits all necessarily, but you definitely feel, because I've heard a lot of different things about gluten because again we would have gone to med school around the same time so for us learning gluten-free diet was really only for people with celiac sprue a very uh unique uh subset of people but then throughout the past i would say five to ten years gluten-free has um been in everything like i think most of your big Pizza chains now make a gluten-free option. Any restaurant I go to these days um, has uh, a gluten-free option for, you know, burgers, et cetera. So what do you think of that kind of emergence of, of, of a lot more uh, people restricting their gluten? Is it because of it being known as a, in, something that's inflammatory to the gut?
1: I think it's a combination of things. I think the biggest player is that people don't feel well, you know, it used to be that we we used to have like the kid at school with the peanut allergy, right? Like there was one kid and like, there was another kid who was obese and for, and everyone Mm -hmm. for the most part was like, you know, relatively normal body weight and didn't have a bunch of allergies. And that landscape has completely changed. And it's not because kids are lazy or parents are bad parents, or, you know, we don't grow up on a farm, you know, walking around in pig poop, which is the whole hygiene hypothesis. It's because there are so many toxins in our world and we are just, you know, we're soaking in them. And so our bodies have become microcosms. I was in Hawaii last week for a conference and there was literally like the sand was like blue and I looked closely at it and it was little tiny beads of plastic. I'm almost almost crying, like saying this, it was like shocking to me. And we, we as humans are microcosms of the, of the toxicity of our planet. And it turns out that the liver and our, you know, glutathione stores and our little enzymes that process toxins can only do so much in a day. And when Mm -hmm. we get to overload, we start to store it away and we store it away. These fat soluble toxins, the body hoards fat in order to buffer and store these toxins. You know, fatty liver is essentially a liver in trouble needing to get some of the toxins out and stuffing the stuff away. So it can deal with just, you know, the estrogens we just need to metabolize so that they not kill us or whatever. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, I see it as really a function of living in toxicity and you know, our genetics haven't changed that much in the last hundred years, but the way in which we manifest illness, like we shouldn't get sick from Lyme. You know what I mean? We shouldn't get sick from EBV. We shouldn't be reactivating. That's an interesting
0: thing, Kristen, because you're right. Like, so we are making a big fuss about Lyme disease. Obviously it almost killed you. So it's definitely fuss worthy. But the fact of the matter is that, um, your father probably was exposed to Lyme. Um, my forefathers were definitely, you know, exposed to Lyme, but you're saying basically it's the culmination of the toxicity of the environment, basically, that's making us see so much more sickness. Like you said, there used to just be the one, you know, obese kid in sixth grade and the one kid that um, had asthma or allergies. And now it is, I mean, every every school ends up sending home stuff about your kid can't bring peanuts to school. These are the list of things that really can't be brought into the school building because of uh, all of the allergies. And so that's a really, Incredible point that you just made. At least for me, it was incredible because I really—I I was just in the moment, like, okay, let's learn about Lyme disease. Let's learn about how you overcame and how we can help other people. But it really has to do so much more with our current environment, which kind of also makes it seem insurmountable. Some days, though, right? Because it's—it's it's the BPA in the water bottles and they're so daggone convenient. And it's the Teflon on the frying pans. And it's, uh, you know, God only knows the cell phone usage. It's all of the towers that are all around us uh, to transmit um, the cell phone waves. And it's all of that, isn't it?
1: It's all that. It's all that. And it's just delightful hearing you have to say it and not me, because I feel like I say that 40 times a day. And I love that you Tapped into that because a lot of doctors would poo-poo that, you know, there's, you know, they're, they're, they would say, well, there's no, there's no study showing us that cell phones are harmful. And the fact of the matter is we can't legally do studies. We can't legally complain about cell phone towers. Like the, the industry is so large that we don't actually get to have a say in, or even ask the question anymore of whether these things are harmful. So when I, when I sort of, you know, am up against a question where there's not maybe science yet to back it up, I say, look, let's go back to, let's, let's ask what our great, great grandparents would have dealt with. Like, would they have been eating foods that have Monsanto sprayed on them? No. Would they have been eating things that are genetically modified and not studied, but show more increased cancers in rats? No. Would they have been, you know, putting these electromagnetic devices up to their ear and head every day, 20 times or a hundred times or a thousand times a day? Definitely not. And anything that we can control, it, I think it makes sense to to revert back to what is, you know, less potentially damaging. So you asked about gluten. I want to get back to it because it's, it's a pretty controversial topic. And I,
0: I think yeah, it is of, because yeah. some people have, I feel like even within the medical science has come out and said, do not do a gluten-free diet unless you, you've you been tested and you have a gluten allergy. Um, they, the, I think, the establishment has basically said they've seen no, um, you know, benefit of doing it, and so we definitely will put the caveat out there that um, not every one with an MD or a DO after their name feels the same way as uh, myself and Kristen, and and it, it, it behooves the patient to be an educated consumer and figure out what's going to be best for them. It does really need require that you shop around because one size doesn't fit all you, um, you were treated in the conventional methods with Lyme and got worse. It was, you only got better when your mindset changed and then you changed a whole bunch of other things um, in your diet, the elimination um, and, you know, some, some other healing things that you did, but we definitely have to put that caveat out there that it's for a fair amount of what we've talked about. It is outside of what is the medical establishment, but definitely go talk to us about gluten and what you feel about it.
1: So I believe that our ancestors probably stumbled across gluten in the wild. Unfortunately, the gluten that we stumble across sometimes several times a day is not what our ancestors would have come across. And therefore, to our to the way our intestines evolved and our immune system evolved, it does not recognize today's gluten as, as something that's healthy for us. Um, sure, gluten-containing grains like wheat and barley and rye, they have lots of benefits in terms of the protein content and a lot of the phytonutrients in those grains, but they um, they also contain, unfortunately, a molecule called gliadin. And gliadin has been demonstrated, and this is this is all in papers that doctors have access to, you know, peer-reviewed literature. It's demonstrated to elaborate something called zonulin, which is a protein that literally cracks open the spaces between cells in the gut, creating a little micro-pore. And maybe it's temporary. Maybe one bite of gluten creates that pore. and Instantly, your fibroblasts and your immune cells and your repair system gets to work. But again and again and again, as you repeat that injury over time, things break down if you, uh, maybe you have some inability to prepare it and that's why someone becomes a celiac or gets a diagnosis, maybe you just get this low level kind of rumbly feeling in your tummy when you eat gluten, which tells you your body's got a little inflammation it's dealing with it. That's how I was. So my whole life I dealt with what I just called digestion, which actually was actually me digesting gluten, which was kind of a gassy, bloaty, farty thing that happened after I ate, which I did not notice at all during the elimination diet the first time I did it and only noticed again Mm -hmm. when added back gluten. Interesting, right? So Mm -hmm. I ended up staying off of it. The other thing that people don't realize in many cases is that the gluten that we eat today, the wheat or the barley or the rye has been not necessarily genetically modified, though hybridized, which is a kind of more natural genetic modification where the farmers sort of splice or um, make two plants that have a higher content and then select for those So the so the gluten that we have today actually has forty times the content of the gluten that would be in something our ancestors would have stumbled across. And then another big issue that people don't realize is that even organic wheat can be sprayed with Roundup, which is Monsanto's glyphosate, a chemical poison um, that is very toxic to the gut, the microbiome of the gut in particular, and can really cause disruption there. And that gets sprayed to bring crops to harvest more quickly. Um, not in every country, but in this country, it definitely is the case. And so what, what many people experience as severe gluten intolerance might just be that they're getting severe damage from eating the roundup on that wheat that it's processed with. So I would say at this point, I've done the elimination diet actually eight times. And, um, mm-hmm. since 2012, and I stopped adding back gluten after the first time. Cause I was like, I'm done. I'm over it. I don't need it anymore. It's definitely not on my healing team. Well, in the last few years, my kids have convinced me to try it. They say, mom, you always say any gut can heal from any food. Why don't you just try it? And I was like, oh, you're really going to feed me around <laughs> words. All right. So a couple of Thanksgiving ago, I added gluten back and boy, did I, like I had three different kinds of pie. Of course they were all pies that I made. There was no other junk in it. I would never add back anything um, without you know, being a super strict about my, my experiment. Right. So I was only changing that one variable and um, I did not have the gassy bloaty farty, which is interesting, but I did feel like a super intense t- in my hands and feet as if, um, I almost had like more blood flow there. It was kind of interesting. So I I have no interest in eating gluten. I know on principle that it's bad for me. Um, I really did that experiment to honor my kids, you know, request and put your money where your mouth is, (laughs) your gluten, where your mouth is. Um, but yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm over it. I'm done. And I don't believe anyone should be eating gluten. I think it's harmful to the gut, which means it's harmful to your immune system and to your brain. And, uh, I, I really, you know, if my, even if my patients don't want to do an elimination diet, I say, well, at least for God's sake, stop eating gluten. <laughs> and I don't mean okay. eat processed packaged, you know, gluten-free pizzas. I mean, get eat whole real foods. Like you're not going to find gluten in, in the periphery of the supermarket, which is where you should be shopping. Mm-hmm. Or farmer's markets, you know?
0: Okay, cool. So, um, I mean, I think that's a good place to end as far as basically, um, you know, your healing process was multi-step it, and it's an ongoing healing and learning process. Um, tell the listeners where, how they can learn more about your process and about, um, your journey to healing. Sure.
1: Um, so you can go to my website, which is kristinrymanmd.com. Um, and there you can check out a little bit about me. You can also buy my ebook. My ebook is actually my brains download on everything Lyme related. And when I say Lyme, I really mean any chronic, complex, mysterious medical symptom or illness that you'd like to kind of get to the root at and make major lifestyle changes around to support. I also do, um, every couple of months I run an online group and that's a place for, to get guidance and support to do a comprehensive elimination diet. Actually I have another group starting next week as it turns out. Um, so people who want to know more about that or know how to work with me, um, in that way can get on my Facebook page or add themselves to my newsletter. I always send that stuff out every time something comes around in a way to work with me.
0: Okay, great. I'm going to definitely check it out because I, um, I want to be living my best life. And, um, as we get older, we certainly, um, can see you know the changes and i'm definitely interested in learning how to detox the environment for my family also so uh, you know i've subscribed to your newsletter and uh, we'll definitely check out the um the elimination uh program that you're starting in in a week or so but thank you so much Kristen for um being on the show and giving us, um, an intro to your life and your struggles and, and the victories that you've accomplished. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Makunda.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Uninhibited. You can find more episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Like us on Facebook at Uninhibited Podcast. You can join our conversation offline through Facebook with Uninhibited Podcast or on Instagram at uninhibited.podcast. And a special shout out to Trap Quilo for the music.